Hello and welcome to a new exciting episode of A Flat Pack History of Sweden with Chris but no author. And uh, this could be quite funny because we're recording with my brother, Jack. Yay! Hello, Jack. <laughs> Hiya. Um, which is, I think this is going to be quite interesting because, especially when growing up, whenever we would answer the phone at home, people could never tell if it was me or Jack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, the listeners might think it's just me talking to myself, which would be quite funny. But yes, Jack is also very interested in history. Unfortunately, he doesn't have his own history podcast just yet. No. But even just yesterday, we were talking about the Finnish army during the Second World War and things like that. So we always talk about random fun things. And the Vikings are definitely something we're both interested in. Yeah, definitely. So this is going to be fun. But first, uh, seeing as there's no author, we're going to have a guest doing the Swedish phrase of the week as well. And this time it's my friend Joachim, who is from the Swedish-speaking part of Finland. So he sent us a very sort of unique and local phrase that they say in that part of Finland. And he's also given us an example and how you would say it in normal Swedish as well. So let's listen to that now. Vi har så det understa ruttnar which means we have to the point of the undermost rotting. And using this in a sentence like this, Behöver ni mer potatis? Nej, vi har så det understa ruttnar. På riksvenska så betyder det då att man har någonting i överflöd eller så det räcker att bli det Thank you, Joachim. So, in case you didn't catch that, his phrase means to the point of the undermost rotting, <laughs> which is an excellently uh, literally translated phrase in English. So it basically means, in his example, he says, would you like more potatoes? No, we've got it to the undermost rotting. So we've got something so much that it's rotting away. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so, and then he also said it in how you would say it in normal Swedish after that. So thank you very much, Joachim. That's definitely going on to our list. Before we get into the episode this week, we also have a trailer from an excellent new podcast that I've been listening to called Casting Through Ancient Greece. And we'll let Mark introduce his podcast for us. In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for that, Mark. I've really enjoyed listening to the first episodes of your great podcast and I really appreciate it being a fellow ancient historian at least by my undergrad degree and the podcast really does cover all those great stories that you would expect from ancient greece so do give a listen to mark's podcast and there will be a link on our social media and in the episode description of this episode so do scroll down and find out more for now it's on to episode 18 of a flat pack history of sweden stories of viking women this episode is going to be a little bit different in the sense that I've done all the research and Jack is going to be listening and reacting as we go. So it's going to be slightly different, uh, hopefully more fun and a little more lighthearted because some of these stories are really great and they're uh, really 
interesting to tell to other people, which is the whole point of the podcast. Uh, but this is going to be really great for me because I get to see people react to it as I tell it. So hope you all enjoy this little bit of a different episode as we look at these three Viking women. So where shall we start? Do you have any thoughts of what these Viking women might be getting up to, these three women? What can you expect? Going off of... The couple of episodes of Vikings that I've watched, uh, they're they're gonna be. I don't think they shy away from what I like fighting themselves. Um, so I'm sure they've got quite a few gory scenes for themselves. Yeah, there's definitely the third one is more gore. The first one and two is a bit more political, but uh, okay. yeah, there's there's quite it's quite interesting. So in our last episode, we talked a lot about how Viking women would get involved in politics and how marriages were really important. And so what women in the Viking times got up to was dependent on a great many things. If they were married, widowed or single, which area they lived in, their social status. So were they a queen of the Vikings or a slave? So that's probably going to be a bit different. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine the, the queens are probably going to have it a little bit better off than the slaves. And of course, whether or not they had children, which was a big deal, same as it is today. We looked at a few things that will come up today, last time, uh, about how women could get involved in politics, either through marriages or attending baptisms or even witnessing peace treaties, or sometimes accompanying Viking raiders on expeditions overseas. A few things we didn't really mention last week included running businesses, making sales and managing the household, either as a married woman or as a widow. And a few of these themes will return this week as we look at our three case studies. We first look at how women had agency and decisions in their marriages and betrothals and how some decisions could even determine the fate of kingdoms or whole political entities. This will be when we look at Astrid and her journey through life and betrothal as a princess of Sweden. We'll then return to the world of Ansgar and see how women in Birka during this time could behave and live independent lives and choose what to do with all this amazing amount of money that they uh, got to build up themselves. And then last but not least, we'll finally hear the dramatic story of Olga, the wife and then widow of Igor, who we talked about in episode 15, and see how she became the regent of the people of Kiev and led her people on a brutal and sometimes ingenious campaign of revenge against the people who killed her husband. So I'm looking forward to (laughs) finally telling that story because it's going to be great fun. And then she had a bit of a career change later in life and became a saint. So, <laughs> yeah. so she, she really got up to everything. Um, but through these three stories, we'll really add a bit of colour onto the bit of the dry thematic work that we've been looking on a bit more recently and try and bring a few of these people to life. So ready for that? Yep. Right, cool. So we'll start with Princess Astrid Olaf's daughter. And Astrid's story is told to us in the legendary saga of King Olaf Haraldsson, one of the oldest stories in the Icelandic sagas. Dr. Friedrichsdotter, who we've spoken a lot about recently, calls it one of the most astonishing episodes in all of the sagas. But before we go into Astrid's story, we need a tiny bit of a brief background because this is where it gets a bit complicated but we won't go into it too much because we will cover it a bit later on once we reach this period in time in our chronology of Sweden. So King Olaf was a Norwegian and he had a very typical Viking career so what do you think that would be? 
raiding either Denmark or England. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> uh, so he sailed around the Baltic first, but then he went to England as a teenager. And he was the half-brother of the legendary Viking king Harold Hardrada. And he was supposedly a commander in the forces of English king Ethelred the Unready. And he potentially helped to restore London and the English throne to Ethelred by removing Danish King Knut. And he did this by helping to burn down and pull down London Bridge in 1014. (laughs) Apparently they sort of sailed up and attached ropes to the bridge and then pulled it down and set it on fire (laughs) and stuff. So that's very cool. And that's mentioned in a poem and also by Snorri Sturluson. So not very good for London Bridge. A year later, he returned to Norway to become king and he helped consolidate this title a year later after a large battle in a place called Nestiar. The loser of this battle was a Norwegian royal noble, an earl, but he survived the battle and he retreated to Sweden after he lost the battle and the war. And he did this because he was married to either the sister or the daughter, we're not really sure, of the Swedish king, Olaf Hurtkonung. And he's a huge figure that we'll return to in a number of episodes' time. But It was then that a new war erupted between Norway and Sweden just as this earl died. And this happened because the new Norwegian king and the Swedish king were a bit angry at each other because the loser of the Norwegian civil war went to hide and stay with the Swedish king. So you can see why the Norwegian king's not really happy (laughs) about him uh, holding on to his his enemies and looking after them. And so Snorri Sturluson, the saga author, says that Loads of people in Sweden and Norway were begging the kings not to go into this war because it costs loads of money and... They're the ones that died. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The nobles are the ones who are fighting in the front line and trying to get their honour and everything in battle. And so they're the ones who are being killed in these costly wars. And so 1018, Olaf Hortkonung's cousin arrived in Sweden with some diplomats from the Norwegian king to try and finally persuade the Swedish king to accept peace. And one suggestion was that Furtkorung could marry his daughter Ingebjord to the Norwegian king Olaf. The Swedish king actually got really angry at this idea and threatened to banish his cousin for the kingdom for even suggesting it. But eventually, after a great deal of like heated discussion with his advisors and nobles, he agreed to marry his daughter to the Norwegian king to stop the war. So that sounds sensible. Yeah. As soon as the diplomats left, the Swedish king changed his mind <laughs> and said that his daughter couldn't marry Haraldsson because she was going to marry Yaroslav the Wise instead, who was the ruler of the Rus back down in Kiev, where we've seen that the Vikings have been previously in our episodes. Yaroslav had united Novgorod and Kiev into this sort of slightly bigger kingdom. So the Swedish king thought how about I marry my daughter to these guys and said, he seems better than the Norwegian guy, but he didn't realise that this is obviously going to really annoy the Norwegian king. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess their neighbours, whereas Kiev's relatively far from Sweden. Yeah, exactly. So he's there's this war that could happen right away with your direct neighbour and you choose to go back on something you agreed (laughs) only a few weeks or months before. So that's not really a great idea. Olaf Haraldsson was furious and he was about to attack Sweden because of this, because he was a proud ruler and a king by himself and didn't want to just be humiliated by his neighbours. And this was when Astrid comes in. So she knew that her father was this bit of a hothead and always changed his mind with quite bad consequences. So she decides to just take the matter into her own hands and she rushes off to Norway with a male relative. She gets there and she says to the Norwegian king, hey, do you want to marry me instead, instead of my sister? 
<laughs> so, which is amazing. And that must have been quite a big decision and a pretty crazy journey because normally they're only allowed to, as we've seen in the last few episodes, the women don't really get a say in who they get to marry. It's always yeah. the king saying, you marry for this alliance and you marry for that alliance. So this is quite a brave decision to just run off to another country. Could have ended really badly as well because he could have just kidnapped her and just been like, just ransom you back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not necessarily marry, but just use you as a pawn, basically. Yeah, because it's all about politics and yeah, there could have definitely been a, something that, that could have gone wrong for Astrid here. But she's thinking, I get to marry a king and stay close by to Sweden, not sent off to somewhere really far away yeah. like Kiev or Normandy or England. And for her as well, because she was the younger sister, it was always the older sister who would get the better marriages because they're the yeah. oldest firstborn or firstborn daughter. By choosing herself, she's able to pick maybe a slightly better husband. Different sagas say different things about how she convinces Olaf to marry her. One of them says that she was very Christian and used lots of Christian rhetoric and arguments to persuade him with the legendary saga having her appeal to the king's sense of honour and also saying, this will really make my dad mad and you hate my dad, so <laughs> if you marry me, that will be great. Either way, they agree to get married and the war is stopped and Astrid is seen by everyone as this champion diplomat who has managed to stop the war where none of the men could and it took this woman making up a decision by herself was able to stop the war and the marriage also lasts for quite a while as well which we'll get to see in a very short period of time so it's a pretty good decision in the end then. Yeah, and hindsight. Yeah, exactly. In hindsight, it worked. Dr. Friedrichsdottir is quite surprised by this whole tale because, as we said, most women wouldn't have the audacity to run away from their father, who's also a king, to yeah. go and propose marriage to another man, someone who her father had explicitly changed his mind to not marry his daughter to. And he wasn't just some local farmer or even a minor noble, but he was the king of Sweden. And... While she is portrayed as an assertive and bold figure herself, this is still definitely a wild action, according to Dr. Friedrichsdotter. These two actions of disobeying her father and then proposing to another male ruler is really unusual for women in the Viking Age. But because this is so unusual, we can use this as a way to look back on what life would have been like for normal women, because every, this is in the news, so to speak, because it is so different. Yeah. So because it's different, you can then see what it would have been like normally, because this was different in pretty much every way possible. Most wouldn't have been able to choose the man who they would marry. Poor girls with families that couldn't afford a dowry wouldn't have even been able to get married at all and would have had to work on the farm somewhere or in a local business that their their family were working for because marriage was primarily a business transaction between the men as dr friedrich Stoss says a bit how like farmers sell sheep or race horse managers sell racehorses to other racing companies because they're selling them for the biological and political needs rather than, oh, I love this person. Viking laws allowed women more rights than other local cultures at this time, and they were able to inherit and own property, but they didn't have a formal say over who they married, and that makes Astrid even more special. The only way a woman could refuse to marry someone was if they were a widow and their father was also dead. If you, you married someone and your husband died, if your father was still alive, he would still be able to decide your next marriage for you. Yeah. But if your father had died 
before your husband had died, then you would be able to say, no, I don't want to marry you if someone asks right, you to marry yeah. you. So it's very specific circumstances. Because otherwise, if your guardian or family members said that you should marry this person, then you would have to. And disobeying your family was against the law. Looking back at this story, do we think it's true or not? Because Snorri Sturluson actually says that the peace treaty was actually the work of a Swedish noble who went with her, but a lot of sources think that there's actually some sort of truth in the whole story. It's just one of those things that I think we'll never actually know, but it is noted down in different sources as well, so that's always good to have. Yeah, cross Yes, cross-reference. And before we say goodbye to Astrid, the current Norwegian royal family have something to thank her for, because with King Olaf, she had a daughter called Wolfhild, and many royal lines of the modern day are descended from Wolfhild, including members of the House of Satskoba Gotha, which was the British royal family before the turn of the 19th century. Edward VII of England had a daughter called Maud of Wales, and she was the mother of King Olaf V of Norway, and his son is Harold V, the present king of Norway. And so they're all descended from Astrid from yeah. back then. So yeah. it's she made a good decision for the history of the Norwegian royal family, at least. So thank you, Astrid. That was a really great story. Uh, what did you think of her story? Yeah, it's um, quite interesting how just that one change can affect, has that kind of butterfly effect down the years of both countries. Yeah, and and as you said before, like these are neighbouring countries. This isn't just some little prince in Kiev or somewhere. These are the actual neighbours, and she would have known full well the consequences of the two countries going to war. So it's quite a bold decision by her to go against her father when he's such an angry man. Yeah. So now our second story, and this is time to return to Birka, that amazing trading town that the Viking Swedes had just near Stockholm. And we'll hear more about the results of the great priest Ansgar from episode 12. So so it's hello and welcome back to Ansgar. One of the many parts of Ansgar's story that we didn't really get to go into in too much detail because there was so much of it at the time is actually really helpful here and it involves something from his first trip to Birka in 829. So Ansgar was this uh, Christian missionary who was sent by Louis the Pious, the uh, leader of the Franks, and he tried to convert some people in Sweden, uh, mainly in the town of Birka. And so in his first trip, we've saved this great quote uh, from his first trip to Birka about how he met these two women. So the life of Ansgar says, At that time there was amongst the Swedes a very pious matron whom the forwardness of wicked men had been unable to turn her aside from the true faith. It was frequently suggested to her, when she was placed in any difficult position, that she should, in accordance with their custom, offer sacrifices to pagan idols, but she remained unmoved and did not abandon the performance of her Christian religious duties. She declared that it was useless to seek for help from dumb and deaf images and that she thought it detestable to do again the things that she had renounced in her baptism and to fail to perform the promise that she had made to Christ. So basically when things go wrong, the local Vikings are saying, ah, pray to Thor, he'll fix things. And she's like, nope, I like Christianity now and keep saying, no, I'm not going to change my mind again. Yeah, she was very determined to stay with Christianity. Yeah, and this is at the point where there's almost no Christians left because 
this lady's name is Friedeberg, and in this section, so yes, she's talking about how she refused to sacrifice the pagan gods, because this is after Ansgar has left. The local Swedes had their little riot against the Christian priests who remained, and they killed the guy called Nittard and kicked out Gautbert. This is the period where Adam of Bremen, writing the history of the Archbishops of Bremen, he says that it was only the leader, the mayor, or the prefect of the town, Herogar, who was still Christian at this time. So two sources don't entirely agree. Some say it was just Herogar, and the life of Ansgar says that it was also this lady called Friedeberg. But it basically means in this whole town, there's only one or two Christians left. Yeah. Um, so Ansgar didn't do too great a job, as we saw back in episode <laughs> 12. But regardless, this Lady Friedeberg sticks to her faith throughout the rest of her life. But however, because there is such a gap before the next Christian priest comes, she starts to get old. And because there's no priest in Birka at the time, she keeps a small cup of wine nearby at wherever she goes, just in case she dies and someone <laughs> can give her the last rites. And that person is her daughter, who's always around nearby because she's uh, afraid of dying without a Christian ceremony, dedication and funeral. But luckily for her, the hermit priest Ardgar arrives just in time, who was sent by Anne scar to go and check on Birka and see how the Christians were doing. This was good timing because Friedeberg got sick just before his arrival but managed to survive just long enough to die in the presence of a real priest and therefore get the Christian blessings that she was so keen to have before she died. So good timing, you're yeah. sort of just waiting for the priest and then uh, he turns up at the right time. But this is where we get to the really interesting part of the story as the lady's daughter was called Katla and she has to follow her mother's final instructions which were... There are here few poor people, so at the first opportunity that occurs after my death, sell all that has not been given away and go with the money to Dorstad. There are there many churches, priests and clergy, and a multitude of poor people. On your arrival, seek out faithful people who may teach you how to distribute this money and give away everything as alms for the benefit of my soul. So she's telling her daughter to go to this town, which is in modern-day Netherlands near Utrecht, and give away all of her money to poor people. Oh, nice. Which is, yeah, it's very nice, but it's also a really long trip. It's because Catla was supposed to take all of her mother's accumulated wealth and give it to the poor people in the Frisian town of Dorstad. Uh, as I just said, it was near modern-day Utrecht in the Netherlands. So this is actually further than Ansgar had originally travelled on his first trip, where he travelled from northern Germany near Hamburg. This is actually even further away and a quick look on the map says it's around 1,300 kilometers and it would take you about 170 hours to walk <laughs> oh my God. so yeah it's quite a long journey and Catla does this journey it doesn't mention if she does it with anyone else it, there's no men or other women mentioned so she's presumably just traveling maybe hitching a ride with a merchant or something yeah. and and going all the way down to the Netherlands and once she arrives, she spends some time wandering around Dorstad and eventually meets up with these pious women. And she starts donating her mother's money to the poor and visiting the holy sites in the area. The ladies, the religious ladies in this town that she met, told her which were the most deserving poor people to give their money to and which of the religious sites deserved the donations more. But then, funnily, one day they get a bit tired, so Catla spends 
some of her money, apparently four coins, to buy them all wine. And so she's like, okay, I've got all of this money that my mum's left for us. I, we can at least have some wine on this hot day when we've been walking around. So she's being nice to her friends as well, which is good, buying yeah. them wine. Um, but then, later on that day, they uh, go inside to get a, a meal somewhere, and she puts her money bag down. Mm. And this is where the money bag is completely empty, because she spent the whole day giving away money to the monks and the poor people of Dorstadt. But then when she returns to find the bag, she found that the previously empty bag has been completely refilled by divine intervention and she tells the ladies and the priests nearby and they says ah this was god's will god wanted to return the money that you donated to the poor to you and when she checks the bag it had all of the money returned apart from the four coins that she spent on the wine ah. so this is sort of a religious tale from the from god to say that well you are so generous i will give you the money back but not the money that you spent on, on yourself the wine, yeah. yeah so that's really quite interesting and the life of ansgar says that the priests told her you have obeyed your mother and kept your pledge to her unimpaired and by undertaking this toilsome journey have accomplished her generous purpose the lord of all good who repays and rewards hath given you this in order to supply your own needs the priests are saying yes god has given this back for you to use after you've been so kind and generous with your mother's money but not for that money that you spent on yourself on wine because that's not religious yeah and we don't know what happened to Catler, but in 834, Dorstad was brutally sacked by the Vikings. But going by the chronology of these events, which is really quite vague, and the fact that the life of Ansgar doesn't mention this, this is hopefully well before Catler arrived. Uh, maybe that's why there were so many poor people. <laughs> yeah, and why the church needed so much more money. <laughs> yeah, because the Vikings have previously come and, <laughs> and sacked them and taken all their gold away. Again, a bit like Astrid, this is really good for looking at what Viking women would have been able to get up to and what Viking women in Birka would have been getting up to. So the first thing it shows is that the Viking women were also able and susceptible to being converted to Christianity by Ansgar and his Christian colleagues. The original text lists Friedeberg as a matron, so it, this has led scholars to presume that she was a widow, as a husband isn't mentioned in the text. But we don't know if this husband was alive when she converted to Christianity, and he converted as well, or if it was a decision she made just by herself. But um, she would have been converted, probably, during Ansgar's first trip, if we can judge the chronology. Either way, later in life, she had enough agency and power and strength of will to fight off all those pagans who were trying to convert her back to the Viking gods. And she was able to do this without having a husband. She, she didn't say, I'm not changing back to, to the pagan religion because my husband will protect me. She's just saying it because she's able to say that herself. Yeah, which is quite interesting that she's able to have that that power when it seems like a lot of powerful people in the town are trying to change her opinion. Secondly, this story also shows that Friedberg was independent enough to either create all this money for herself or at least keep hold of it after her husband's death. Because the original text, as I said, used the word matrona, which meant the wife of a free man. And the fact that there is no husband around or even met at any point during the story shows that she's alone and she's giving the instructions to her daughter about her wealth and her money and what she wants to do with it once she dies. And the amount of money that she had must have been quite a lot, as it was too much to use on just the supposedly few poor people living in Berka. She had to go 
1,300 <laughs> kilometers away to a town to give it away, to be in a place where people needed this much money to give it away. And the fact that it could also fund this huge and what the life of Ansgar calls a toilsome journey to Dorostad and have a lot left over to give in these generous donations shows you that it must have been quite a decent amount of money. Well, I guess some would see it as an attractive uh, feat and some would say that it's maybe... Uh, depends on how progressive they are in their views in terms of whether they want their woman to be very much a power couple, as it were, or whether they want them to very much stay at home and fulfill the womanly role, as it were. Yeah, because we saw a lot in the last episode of these uh, powerful wives of kings turning up and helping to sign peace treaties and take part in baptisms in these big elaborate ceremonies. So there's definitely a role for those powerful women who are able to conduct themselves in these big high important situations and obviously it helps if you have money for those sort of things so yeah it's, it's really interesting to see how she had all this money and was able to donate it to all generous donations it says to all these all these locations and third as well as i mentioned briefly shows you that she was able and independent enough to do this journey as well she traveled 1300 kilometers to to this other town in a, another region which isn't ruled by the people that ruled her town the life of Ansgar doesn't mention that there were any travel companions, so she presumably travelled alone, of course hitching rides with traders and merchants or diplomats, but ostensibly on her own. And we saw from Ansgar's travels when he came to Sweden the first time, he was attacked by Vikings and all of his stuff was stolen from him, and other of his replacements were even murdered on the journey between Northern Europe and Sweden. So it wasn't just, uh, oh, I'm just popping down to the shops. It's a dangerous journey, and you're an independent woman by yourself with loads of money <laughs> yeah so i think that if anyone would be a target for viking robbers it would be her and but she was still able to do this overall not just being a fun and interesting story this tale does give quite a good picture of how women could be independent enough to make and then control a vast sum of money have decisions about what to do with it when they die and also be able to travel and physically give it away or use it themselves in day-to-day -day life and it's easy to see how an ambitious woman in a place like Birka could build up this money, as we've seen how making sales and trading was very much something that Viking women were able to get involved with. And considering Birka was the big hub for trade in the east of Sweden, which linked into the Byzantine Empire and all the trading ports in the east and through down to the south and the west, it doesn't seem too outrageous that this could be something that Catler uh, and Friedeberg were doing. But now it's on to the story that a lot of people have been waiting for. I know I've been waiting to tell it for quite a while when we had a bit of a gap when we finished Igor's story back out in Kiev and we've done these few episodes on Viking women first before we finish off that story. So a bit of a background in case this is the first episode you're listening to and a bit of a background for Jack as well. We saw how the dynasty of these Vikings settled in areas around Kiev and the east and how by the time we reach the early 900s, there's a leader of Kiev called Oleg, and he died in that dramatic death where he trod on the horse's skull, which had a snake in it, and the snake bit him and killed him. <laughs> <laughs> because this is one of these prophecies where 
he was told that this favorite horse would kill him. So he sent the horse away. And then five years uh, later, he found out that ha, his horse is dead. And so he went over to mock the dead horse. And was like, ah, you can't kill me now. And then he trod on the skull and then the snake came out and bit him. So it's one of these prophecy yeah. fable stories. And that was when Igor took over his son. This was this bit of a weird chronology. He either took over in 910 or in 941. And... This is when Olga is the wife of Igor, and she was born 200 kilometers west of Novgorod, near the Estonian border in modern-day northwestern Russia. We first properly see her doing things when she's mentioned in the peace treaty between the Rus and the Byzantines in 944 and 945, although she is mentioned as early as 903 as being brought from the city of Piskov to be the wife of Igor. And this is all in the primary chronicle, that history of Russia that was a a mixture between the Anglo-Saxon chronicle and the sagas and the uh, texts from the priests in, in France. It's a bit... Sometimes can be very exaggerated, but sometimes it seems to be very accurate. Igor then goes around ruling Kiev as a usual local Rus leader before he gets killed by the tribe called the Derevlians in 945, the same year that he signs the peace treaty with the Byzantine emperor. He commits the classic mistake of going back for more money when he'd already managed to get a big tribute from them. He's halfway on the way home and thinks actually, I can get more money from them, and goes back, and then they kill him. Uh, so, not not good. He'd forced this tribute from the Derevlians, but then the Derevlians weren't too happy when he turned back, so the prince, called Marl, gives a speech, which we quoted back in episode 15. I'll just quote one line, because it's great, and it says, If a wolf come among the sheep, he will take away the whole flock one by one, unless he be killed. If we do not kill him now, he will destroy us all. And so this is when he was tied between two bent down trees and then they let the trees stand back up and ripped him in half. Nice. Yep, not very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty brutal death that Leo the Deacon describes for us, the uh, Byzantine historian. So yeah, that's not not too great. And you can imagine that his wife, Olga, isn't too happy about this. The Derevlians then actually try to come to Kiev and get Olga to marry Prince Marl. Hello, we've just ripped your husband in half. Would you like to marry our ruler? Yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily the best uh, best idea to come with. And so they want to do this because Olga and Igor's son, Svetoslav, is really, really young. So they think if they can marry into this royal family, they'll be able to mould Svetoslav and take over Kiev sort of in, in the long run. And to do this, the Derevlians send some envoys to Kiev to start talking about marriage. But... Olga naturally doesn't want this, so she starts plotting a threefold revenge cunning plan. And so the Derevlians first sent their best men, 20 in number, to Olga by boat. And so the Primary Chronicle says, Olga was informed that the Derevlians had arrived and summoned them to her presence with a gracious welcome. When the Derevlians had thus announced their arrival, Olga replied with an inquiry as to the reason for their coming. The Derevlians then announced that their tribe had sent them to report that they had slain her husband because he was like a wolf, crafty and ravening. But their princes, who had thus preserved the land of Dereva, were good, and that Olga should come and marry their prince Marl. So Olga initially agrees to a provisional proposal, but wants to meet the envoys in a proper assembly where her people can be there and her advisors can listen to it in a proper ceremony. So she comes up with a plan that the next day the Derevlians will come to the gate and 
They will ask the Vrus to carry them to Olga in their boat, dragging the boat up the hill in some sort of weird ceremonial procession. They carry the boat into the actual chamber (laughs) to meet her, which sounds amazing and quite hard to do. But while she's waiting for this to happen the next day, Olga orders a large ditch to be dug inside her castle's walls. And the next day, the Derevlians turn up properly, as agreed, to be carried up to Olga for the ceremony. The Primary Chronicle relates the next piece of the story and says, So they carried the Derevlians in their boat. The latter sat on the cross benches in great robes, puffed up with pride. They thus were borne into the court before Olga, and when the men had brought the Derevlians in, they dropped them into the ditch along with the boat. Olga bent over and inquired whether they found the honour to their taste. They answered that it was worse than the death of Igor. She then commanded that they should be buried alive, and thus they were buried. (laughs) Wow. So they just carry the boat up, pretend they're taking them to this ceremony, and then chuck them in a ditch and then (laughs) bury bury them alive. Wow. So that's round one, Olga. (laughs) Um, And this is when the Derevlians seem to be very silly because they keep falling for these tricks so (laughs) next Olga sends a message back to the Derevlian saying that if they were really serious about marrying her they should send their proper rulers and their nobles and their advisors not just a few diplomats so that she can be escorted by them back to their city in the honour befitting a true princess and for some reason the Derevlians agree Um, I'm not sure whether they knew that their first envoys had been murdered or they just hadn't turned up or they didn't care but either way they agree and so once the Derevlian rulers and advisors arrive at Kiev, Olga says, well, you've travelled really far, you should at least have a bath and I'll only meet with you after you have a bath because you've been travelling for so long and you're all disgusting and dirty and smelly. And so when they were put in the bathhouse, Olga's men locked the door, set it on fire and they were all burned alive. (laughs) (laughs) Which just, why would you, yeah, I, I don't understand. She takes no prisoners, clearly. Yeah. Going into the bath. Oh, it's quite warm in here. No, it's fine. Don't worry. What's all this smoke? Oh, no. It's just... It's a sauna. Don't worry. It's a sauna. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The third step in her immediate revenge is she then tells the Derevlians that she would like to visit her husband's tomb because the Derevlians didn't give back Igor's body. They actually buried it outside one of their towns. And they did give it a bit of a ceremony and, and a big burial mound. So there was a reason that she would want to go and visit her ex-husband's burial mound and I'm not sure again why they agreed to do this after Olga has just killed most of their ruling classes and all of their diplomats maybe they thought this would be the final part of the priest process or she now has had her revenge so maybe we should just talk to her normally but either way they do it and they have this big funeral feast and Olga sits around sort of quietly watching whilst the Derevlians get very drunk and what do you think happens then? (laughs) She kills them all? Yes. <laughs> the Primary Chronicle says, When the Derevlians were drunk, she bade her followers fall upon them and went about herself, egging on her retinue to the massacre of the Derevlians. So they cut down 5,000 of them. But what? Olga returned to Kiev and prepared an army to attack the survivors. What? Yeah. She killed 5,000? Yeah, 5,000 people <laughs> at a funeral feast. And wow. Got them all drunk. Right, okay. Yeah, and then, but she's not satisfied, so she goes home to Kiev to raise an army to attack the survivors. I can't imagine there's very many of them left. But... Yeah, or at least I assume that the, the 5,000 that she killed were probably all the uh, higher class people, so there's probably only the working class and maybe some guards that are left over. Yeah, and they, it wasn't even their decision to get into this whole process. But... <laughs> yeah. 
So Olga returns to the Derevlians with her son, Svetoslav, and a large, uh, valiant army to finally put the situation to rest and get her last bit of revenge. And the primary chronicle says that Svetoslav actually tries to start the battle by throwing his spear at the enemy, but the chronicle says that he's still such a small boy that the spear doesn't even go over the horse that he's riding and manages to hit his own leg. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so he's clearly like a three or four year old yeah, child yeah. with this huge spear. But fortunately, it wasn't too bad a disaster as the Kievan Rus easily defeat the Derevlian army, but the survivors retreated into the city where Igor was killed and a year-long siege begins with both sides sort of fighting bravely in, in siege attacks. But eventually, after a year, Olga sends a messenger into the city asking, Why do you still hold out? All of your cities have surrendered to me and submitted to tribute so that the inhabitants now cultivate their fields and their lands in peace, but you would rather die of hunger without submitting to tribute. And the Derevlians replied that they would be glad to give her a tribute, but they were worried that she was still going to kill them to avenge Igor. So they're finally learning. <laughs> Don't yeah. listen to anything this lady says. Fool me once. <laughs> yeah, fool, fool me, me th three times. <laughs> Shame on me. The Primary Chronicle says, Olga then answered, Since I have already avenged the misfortune of my husband twice on the occasion when your messengers came to Kiev, and a third time when I held a funeral feast for him, I do not desire further revenge, but am anxious to receive a small tribute. After I have made peace with you, I shall return home again. The Derevlians, however, fall for her trick one more time. Uh, the Derevlians said that they could give her honey and fur as a nice tribute, as this is worth a lot of money. But instead, Olga asks for a slightly different, smaller request. She says, Give me three pigeons and three sparrows from each house. I do not desire to impose a heavy tribute like my husband, but I require only this small gift for you, for you are all impoverished by the siege. So what do you think she's going to do with these pigeons and sparrows? Uh, I have no idea. So he says, Now Olga gave to each soldier in her army a pigeon or a sparrow and ordered them to attach a piece of thread to each pigeon and sparrow where a piece of sulphur was bound by small pieces of cloth. When night fell, Olga bade her soldiers to set fire to the sulphur and release the pigeons and the sparrows. So the birds flew back to their nests, the pigeons to the coats and the sparrows under the eaves of buildings. Thus the dovecoats, the coops, the porches and the haylofts were all set on fire. There was not a house that was not consumed and it was impossible to extinguish the flames because all the houses caught fire at once. The people fled from the city and Olga ordered her soldiers to catch them. Thus she took the city and burned it and captured the elders of the city. Some of the other captives she killed, while she gave others as slaves to her followers. The remnants she left to pay her tribute. <laughs> that is so clever. <laughs> yeah. So she captures all amazing. the birds who just want to go home when they're released, but then they're all carrying a little piece of string with sulphur on it that's on fire. So then when yeah. they land, they set fire to the whole town. <laughs> yeah, and I guess they're they're going to be like you said in barns and. Their, their nests themselves are going to be kindling yeah. and it's just going to, that's amazing <laughs> yeah such a such a sneaky and clever way of doing it from this point on it seems that Olga actually gets a chance to rule in peaceful times and does it quite well she went to places like Novgorod and established trading posts and collecting tribute on the way the Primary Chronicle, written a, a fair amount of time after these events, says that her hunting grounds, boundary posts, towns and trading posts still existed throughout the whole region when they were writing. So she then returned to Kiev and lived in peace. 
This was before the third and final stage of Olga's career, which was her diplomacy with the Byzantines and eventual conversion to Christianity. In 957, she heads to Constantinople to meet with Emperor Constantine VII. And the Primary Chronicle gives some details about the trip, but we also have a first-hand account from Constantine himself, which is really exciting. The Primary Chronicle says that when she arrived, Constantine actually proposed to Olga, as she was wise and he was amazed by her intellect. Olga then refuses to get married until she's baptised, and will only accept if Constantine does the baptism himself, along with the Patriarch, the chief priest of Constantinople. Olga was baptised with the name Helena, but she once again displays her trickery, because Constantine himself baptised Olga and named her as his goddaughter. So when a few days later, when he proposed to her, Olga says, how can you marry me after yourself baptising me and calling me your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful, as you yourself must know. And then the emperor said... Olga, you have outwitted me. <laughs> <laughs> so he's she's basically saying, yeah, you can't marry me because I'm your daughter. You can't marry your daughter. But she gets baptised in this great elaborate ceremony with the emperor himself doing it. So yeah. Apparently Constantine then gave her many gifts of gold, silver and silk and various vases and dismissed her, but still called her his daughter. I just really like how the emperor just says, Olga, you have outwitted me. <laughs> you played me. <laughs> yeah, you win. And so Olga goes back to Kiev, and once she's there, the emperor asks Olga to, how about you give me some gifts now? Now I've given you all of these great gifts, and if you could maybe send some of your excellent soldiers as well, because they're great in battle, your Vikings, basically, and we could really do with them. And Olga replied that she would only do so once he had spent as much time in Kiev as she had done in Constantinople, which was quite <laughs> unlikely. So, yeah. so Again, she's just being this really bold with the emperor of the of the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople. It's not just the Derevlian, some little tribe nearby. This is the probably the most powerful person in the region. When looking back at it, Constantine has a few differences in his account of the story. He doesn't mention the proposal of marriage or the baptism at all. And <laughs> scholars, why. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so scholars tend to agree that she was probably baptized before the visit to Constantinople, and the marriage proposal never happened. But we can explain the differences in the account because either the proposal never happened and the primary chronicle just wanted to include this to make Olga seem more powerful than she was or it meant that it actually did happen and it was naturally a huge embarrassment to Constantine so he's not going to write it down in his own diary that this <laughs> yeah. woman fooled me in this really elaborate scheme. Yeah, we'll never know, but perhaps it seems more likely that it was invented to make her seem more powerful as the Primary Chronicle was written a couple of hundred years after Olga was alive, so they would naturally want to make her seem more Embellish. powerful and embellish them with the stories. Constantine's account actually then spends a lot of time focusing on the state dinners and processions that were offered to Olga because Constantine was really interested in sort of the how to be an emperor guide of, of life and he would write down for when anybody came to visit him he would write down loads of details about all of the feasts that he would give them and, and things like this and so he writes that and this was actually the main purpose of this book it isn't sort of just his diary it's, it's a commentary on how to be an emperor in, in, in that sense and he writes that when Olga met the emperor in the procession, she was followed by her closest female relatives and then the noblest of her ladies-in-waiting with the male diplomats and the advisers from Kiev bringing up the rear. So it shows you that she's really sort of 
ruling with other women as well, which is really quite interesting to look at. And in another of the many receptions that was held for the Rus visitors, Constantine and his wife and children entertain Olga, and she's apparently allowed to speak to him for as long as she likes. And then there are another few state dinners, one at which Olga dines at the top table with the emperor, and then there's another one where she dines with the empress and the couple's children. So she definitely seems to be treated with some respect, and this is Constantine himself saying it. So it's, yeah, there's lots of detail about how he was treating her and how she was behaving as a, a royal leader. Once back in Kiev, Olga then tries to take her Christian duties on a bit more properly, and she actually tries to convert her son Svetoslav, who didn't take too kindly to this, and the Rus would actually have to wait until Olga's grandson, Svetoslav's son, to become the first male ruler who was a Christian. This was Vladimir I, who ruled from 978 to 1015, and he, along with Olga, are now both saints, so that's a bit of a promotion. Uh Yeah. We don't hear too much from Olga after this point, apart from in 968, when Svetoslav is away, the Pekenegs attack Kiev and place it under siege, and Olga goes on a daring escape with her three grandsons on a boat to escape the siege and run away to safety. So even when she's potentially in her 60s and no longer ruling anymore, she's still escaping sieges on boats and doing all this (laughs) amazing stuff. So she's, she's a real action hero. This is her last real action in in her action hero role because the next year she finally dies and she begged her son not to hold a pagan funeral feast for her as just a few days before she died she did receive the last rites from a Christian priest so she didn't want a pagan ceremony to sort of erase that Christian ceremony that she just had. The Primary Chronicle then spends a long time giving a huge eulogy to Olga, saying she was the first from the roost to enter the kingdom of God, which is quite a nice way of talking about going to heaven. So overall, this is very much a saga-type story of all these tricks and betrayals and using these amazing war techniques of using the pigeons to burn things down. So it's a lot of crazy and supernatural stories with the birds and things, and Judith Jesh, one of these historians we've been quoting a lot in these episodes about the women, think that this is very similar to these oral traditions of the time. And this would make sense because the Primary Chronicle was written a couple of hundred years after these events. So you could see how, you know, the grandson of Olga has heard the story from some old man who was at the siege and then embellishes the story and he tells it a little bit more crazy and eventually... Chinese whispers. Yeah, 200 years later, Chinese whispers and she's burning down whole cities with pigeons and, and, and burying boats of diplomats in it, <laughs> which is amazing but the one thing that is amazing and is absolutely true is that there's no doubt that she ruled the Rus of Kiev for a great many years as a woman when there'd been no female leaders before her and she's ruling for about 15 years or so and which is a, an amazing thought and she's not assassinated she's not killed in battle or poisoned or anything like that she just when her son gets old enough she passes over power and which is in itself as well really noble of her so that's her story that's why we've been waiting so long to tell it and yeah any final thoughts on her uh very unique you do hear of these stories of um women that do flip the powers that are normally in place it reminds me of a chinese a female pirate that was ruling like hundreds of ships yeah just come out come out of nowhere and just yeah suddenly because we haven't had three or four 
women who all oh, one rules for a year and then test it out and so the vikings get used to women yeah. being in charge and then she's suddenly around leading armies in sieges and going on diplomatic missions to the byzantine empire and everything and it's just bang she's here which yeah. is pretty cool so yeah that's it for these episodes on viking women this is going to be the last recording that I do from the UK, and then we'll be back in Sweden. This will be out on time, but from this point onwards is when we're going to be a little bit unsure of exactly when the next episode will be coming out. But yes, thank you to Jack for filling in for also and listening to these great stories. Thank you. Yeah, thank <laughs> you for all the, all the great reactions and, and <laughs> listening. It's great because um, normally, obviously, me and Orsa, we research and talk about what we're going to be talking about in advance but for this one this is it's, it's almost like us doing a live podcast with you the listeners which i get to see jack's reaction to things as i tell him yeah, the stories a so, layman as it were yeah so that's been really fun to slightly change the format for this episode yeah but yes thank you all for listening again uh reviews on itunes are more than welcome we are updating our move and things on twitter and facebook as we go and we'll let you know if there's going to be any delay with the next few episodes because of us moving and starting new jobs and finding apartments in sweden and things so the latest news of when episodes will be coming out after this one will be on our social media and we've had a few new messages and everything recently wishing us good luck with the move so thank you so much for that and we'll be in touch with you soon Thank you very much. Bye-bye.